What's up, A12? How y'all doing tonight? That's what I'm talking about. Man, listen, I am so excited that you are here, and I'm so excited about our second week of uh, Secrets, a series that we're doing to talk about a few things. Like last week, we talked about secret sin. And so uh, I would challenge you to go back and look it up on iTunes or go to our website and, uh, and uh, uh, podcast the service from last week. It's a powerful message about how we can get trapped into secret sin, how we get victory over it. And so I would challenge you to go and do that. This week, we're going to be talking about secret doubt. And next week, we're going to be talking about secret hurt. And so this series is a really, really powerful series addressing some of the core things that we all deal with in our life. And the truth is, we all have doubts. In fact, if you don't have doubts right now at this moment, you've had doubts in your past or you have doubts in your future. And sometimes our doubts can begin to unravel us from the inside out. We'll talk a little bit about that. Now, over Christmas, I watched a movie that I watch every year for Christmas, and that movie is the movie Elf. Anybody see that movie over Christmas? Now, while I'm watching the movie over Christmas break, I was having a conversation with someone I was watching the movie with, and they were trying to tell me, that narwhals are real. And of course, being the stubborn know-it-all that I am, I begin to tell them that narwhals are not real. And we begin to have this conversation about, are narwhals real or are they not real? And, and, and I just thought, after watching the movie, that like there's the little puppets by the water and, and there's, you know, and there's a, the little like talking snowman that he's talking to. And so I'm like, all of this stuff seems to be pretty fanciful to me. So this narwhal thing is fanciful. Now, if you've never seen the movie Elf or you need to jog your memory on what a narwhal is. I got a little 30 second clip just to jog your memory. Check it out. Bye, buddy. Bye, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, buddy. Hope you find your dad. Thanks, Mr. Narwhal. <coughs> Bye. Okay. So that's a narwhal, right? And, uh, and I, di I didn't know that that was a real thing, but actually that narwhals are 100% real. In fact, I got a real picture of a real narwhal. Check this out. There they are swimming. See the little spike on their nose? In fact, some of their spikes can get up to 10 feet long. Like that is crazy. And what I've learned is this, is that what I've learned is that just because something sounds fanciful doesn't mean that it's false. And when I begin to talk about belief with people, when you talk about doubt, I think there's a couple things that are good caveats just to place on it. And so this is the first one. I want to say it to you like this. If you got notes, you're taking notes, you can write this down. Just because you don't believe something exists, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Just because you do not believe that something exists, that does not mean that it doesn't exist. In fact, you can say, man, I don't believe in gravity. But if you climbed up to the top of the Empire State Building and you swan-dived off of it, you would really quickly begin to have belief in gravity. I, I don't have to believe that narwhals exist, but that does not change the fact on whether narwhals exist or whether they don't exist. And the second thing, the second caveat when we talk about this is this. People often attach their belief to doubt. They attach their belief, belief to their doubt. 
And when you attach your belief to your doubt, it can begin to dismantle you. Let me, let me explain it to you like this. I remember there was a student who was coming to age 12. This dude was like on fire for God. He was doing crazy things for Jesus. I mean, he was growing like crazy. He was <clears throat> reading his Bible. He was in a life group, all this stuff. And I mean, he was just growing and going after it. And he would come to me almost every week and ask me questions about how he can go deeper in his walk with God. And, and I was so pumped for him. And I remember one night he comes in here. And he tells me, dude, like, I don't know if I can believe anymore. I don't know if I can believe in God anymore. And I'm like, bro, what, what, why not? He says, well, I watched this video today that was basically saying that Christianity borrowed all of its beliefs from these Eastern mythical religions that predated Christianity. So therefore, Christianity can't be true because it borrowed all of its beliefs from these Eastern mythical religions. And I said, bro calm down. First of all, that's not true. And I gave him a little history lesson on Eastern mythical religions and what they believe and what they didn't believe and how uh, the greatest, uh, the, the top scholars in the world uh, on Eastern mythical religions have said that there is no correlation between any of the beliefs of Eastern mythical beliefs and religions and uh, Christianity. And I began to break this down and show this to him, but I begin to have this conversation. What I've found is there's so many people who will be walking along in belief and they attach their doubt to their belief in the moment that someone brings up one objection that they don't know how to answer, one doubt that they don't know how to figure out. It's like, well, forget it. That can't be true, and they walk away from it. Have you guys ever seen that happen before? Maybe it's happened before in your life. People begin to attach their belief to their doubt. And if you're taking notes, I put this at the top of your notes, and if there's kind of a bottom line of what I want you to get tonight, it's this. You should never, you should never lead, uh, your doubt should never lead you to disbelief but to discovery. Doubt should never lead you to disbelief, but discovery. Just because uh, you doubt something doesn't mean that that means that it's not valid. So that you should begin to discover it. You should begin to figure it out. You should go after it. Now, there's a tension that we have to deal with here because the truth is we're talking about Norwals, narwhals, or however you say it. There's nothing, I'm getting corrected, narwhals. There's nothing on the line. But what happens when you doubt things that are significant? See, some of us doubt trivial things. Some of us doubt significant things. But what about when you doubt things that are significant? This is why we're talking about secret doubt. Because I know that for some of you in this room, you have doubts, and they're hidden. They're secret. You don't want to talk to anybody about your doubts because you're afraid that if you talk to people about your doubts, they're going to judge you. They're going to, they're going to assume things about you. Maybe you're in here and you doubt that God exists. Maybe you're in here and you doubt that there is a God. But you're afraid that if you have that conversation, people will look down on you or you're going to disappoint your leader. You're going to disappoint your parents or you're going to disappoint God. I don't think that I understand all of Scripture and I'm not sure I believe that about what it says in the Bible there. And I kind of doubt that and I'm having some doubts about that. So, So can I even be a Christian? And we start asking these questions, and you can see how the weight of that begins to build up in who you are. And after a while, it begins to disenfranchise you to the church. It begins to disenfranchise you to your relationship with God. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself not going to church. You, You find yourself completely walking away from God in those moments, in those times. I've seen it happen so many times in people's lives. And this is a tension that we deal with. And I want you to hear this from me. Trust me when I tell you, God can handle your doubt. 
God can handle your doubt. See, what you have to understand is God has complete understanding. The Bible would tell us that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He has complete understanding. And in God's complete understanding, he understands that our understanding is incomplete. He understands that our understanding is incomplete, and so God is patient with us. All throughout the scripture, we see the Bible telling us how patient God is with us. He's not only patient with us in our sin, he's not only patient with us in our rebellion, but God is also patient with us in our doubt. He understands the doubts that we have. He understands what we're going through. He knows how to deal with that. In fact, when you get into the Bible, you see all the time, all over the place, people doubting Jesus, and Jesus is right there in the mix. In fact, there's this one story in Mark chapter 9. I love this story. This is the story of this guy. He's a, he's a dad, and he comes to Jesus, and he's, he's really asking for Jesus to save his son's life. His son is sick. He doesn't know what's going on uh, with his son. All he knows is, is that his son is going to die, and he's asking Jesus for help. And the truth is, when you begin to read the passage, what you see is, is that the disciples are doubting that Jesus can heal this guy. Now, the disciples have already up to this point seen Jesus heal people. They've seen him turn water to wine. They've seen Jesus do all of this stuff right in front of their face. And here they are in this moment doubting. The people that are following him and and following Jesus and and are around the area because people are following Jesus all over the place. They're doubting. And even the dad doubts. In fact, I want to read the scripture to you, Mark 9, uh, verses 22 through 24. Let me show you what it says. The dad's talking. He says this. If you can, that's an important three words, if you can. Do anything. Take pity on us and help us. If you can. This is kind of how we approach God, right? Sometimes we're like, God, if you can, help with my situation at school. God, if you can, help me get an A on this test that I didn't study for today. You know what I'm saying? Help me guess correctly. Anybody ever prayed that? Like, God, just, hey, look. Like, like, Lord, here's the deal. I know I didn't study. I'll do better next time. If you can help me just guess correctly. Like, you know, just direct me to A when it's A. Direct me to B when it's B. You know what I mean? And, and so that's what he's doing. He's saying, he's, saying, he's saying, if you can. And I love how Jesus responds. Jesus kind of says back to him, he says, if you can, if you can, says Jesus, he says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the, boy fa- the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, listen, Jesus, I, I believe I believe what you're saying. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, Jesus, you're the most important thing in my life. But, but, but truthfully, I have some doubts in my life. Truthfully, I have some doubts about some, some of the things that you say. And I have some doubts about some of the things that I don't understand. And, and so, God, I, like, like I understand that, that I'm supposed to believe. And I do believe. But, man, I, listen, help me with my unbelief. And I bet, if we're honest with ourselves, the truth is that for many of us in this room, that's, that's our story. Our story is, God, listen, I believe in you. I want to follow you with all of my heart. But, Lord, can you help me with some of those things that I doubt in? Will you help me with some of those areas of unbelief? And what I want you to notice in this passage, in every passage that deals with doubt or things like this, Jesus is never threatened by doubt. He's never threatened by it. Never. In fact, he doesn't hide from it. He just addresses it straight on. And the reason is because doubt doesn't lead to disbelief, but it leads to discovery. Can you imagine the people who were here in this moment, and they saw what happened, and they see this guy get healed? 
all of a sudden now they've been introduced to the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King of kings, that he is the Lord of lords, that he is who he says he is. And in that moment, all that doubt was removed. All that doubt was removed because now they, they had a new discovery in their life. And one of the things I want to ask you about is for those things that you doubt, what do you do to seek discovery, to, to research, to go after and get understanding on those areas in which you doubt? It's so important for you to do that. It's so important for you to go after that. And the reason I say that is because I didn't grow up following Jesus. <clears throat> I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up like, you know, as a Christian or any of that kind of stuff. I grew up a skeptic. I grew up a cynic and a critic to Christianity. I would call myself in high school a moderate agnostic. And I would bring up objections to Christianity all the time. Objections like, yeah, you say you got this good God. Well, if there's such a good God out there, why is there all this evil in the world? Or I'd bring up these objections like, yeah, so, uh, so uh, you really believe that the Bible is reliable and accurate and true? Or I would bring up objections like, you really believe that Jesus raised from the dead? Or do, can you really believe and trust the Bible when the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and judgment and the God of the New Testament is full of love and grace and forgiveness? How can God be so wrathful over here and so loving over here? And most Christians couldn't answer those questions. And my doubt in God increased. But then when I was 17 years old, I began to discover who Jesus was. Not because I was seeking him, not because I was chasing after him, but because I found myself in a place like this where they were talking about Jesus at a youth camp the summer after my junior year of high school. And they started talking about Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit began working on my heart and, and began changing me. And I felt this conviction within me, and it was like God was telling me that he was for real. And, and for whatever reason, I just felt like I should give my life to Jesus. But here's the deal. I prayed and received Christ. I gave my life to him, but those doubts were still there. Those questions were still there. I did not have all of those questions answered. So what I did is I gave my life to Jesus, and I knew he was working in my heart, but I was a little bit conflicted because God had given you my life, but I still have these doubts, and, and I don't know how to do this. And, and, and then I, had to, I kept getting reminded, hey, God is patient with you. God is patient. And so I began to discover, and what I found was this. Hey, I had all these thoughts about the Bible and all these thoughts about God and all these thoughts about all these things because I'd never read the Bible. And I began reading the Bible, and what I discovered was is that, wow, the God of the Old Testament is is just as loving as the God of the New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament talks about love four times more than the New Testament does. And, 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 then, and then I begin to, to discover other things like, like is the Bible like reliable and true and accurate? And as I begin to study, I begin to find that, man, the Bible is 100% historically accurate. That all the places are where they say they're supposed to be. All the people are where they say they're supposed to be. All the kings and all the leaders and all the, the everything in history, all the history backs up the claims of the Bible, that there's no contradiction in this. And then as I begin to discover that uh, and, and study, I begin to understand that, that archaeology backs up the claims of the Bible. In fact, in fact, Dr. Earl Radnicker, who's considered uh, in the top three uh, greatest archaeologists that have ever walked the face of the earth, and by many and most, the greatest archaeologist that has ever lived on the face of the earth, said this. He says, I have been accused of teaching the verbal plenary inspiration of scriptures, 
meaning that verbal, uh, the words of Scripture, plenary in their entirety, it was inspired by God and, and perfect in every way. And he said this, I've never taught that. All I have ever said is that there is not one shred of evidence, archaeological evidence, from the antiquities that refutes one thing that the Bible says. So archaeology backs up the claims of the Bible, and history backs up the claims of the Bible. And I begin to see all of this evidence, and, and, and what it did is it began to give me confidence in what I believed. It began to eradicate some of that doubt, because what happened was I didn't allow that doubt to dismantle my faith. I used that doubt as fuel to begin to discover who God was and begin to get more confidence in who He is. See, God's patient with us. I begin to study about the resurrection Thought it was fanciful, like a narwhal. Yeah, right, come on, man. Like, people aren't born of virgins. People don't walk on water. People don't turn water to wine. And people don't raise from the dead. And as I begin to study, what I begin to understand and what I begin to realize was this, is that there's not one historical event that has ever happened in the history of the world that has more evidence than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the leading reason why some of the most aggressive atheists in the entire world in history have turned to Jesus. It is because you cannot refute the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, uh, Josh McDowell, who was an atheist, who set out to, to prove Christianity wrong, and in, in the process of that, gives his life to Christ. Now he writes tons of books and is in uh, apologetics or talks a lot about this stuff on Jesus. Um, he was asked by a student at the University of Uruguay this. He says, why can't you refute Christianity? And he answered, for a simple reason. I am not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Professor Thomas Arnold, a 14-year headmaster at rugby and author of the famous book, History of Rome, and appointed to the chair of modern history at Oxford, which, by the way, if you're appointed the chair of anything at Oxford University, you're brilliant. His specialty is Roman history, which, by the way, Jesus and the Christianity grew under the Roman Empire. So this guy knows historical fact in determining this. And he said this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine the weight of evidence to those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of all mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Brooke Foss Westcott, an English scholar, said this, raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historical incident better or variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who was the uh, Harvard Law professor, who was the chair over the Harvard Law School and basically is known as the guy who wrote the book on law in the United States. He's, he uh, was a staunch atheist, went to set out to disprove Christianity, and he said this, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had Jesus Christ actually not raised from the dead. And it was by this that he gave his life to Christ. Everything in the scripture hinges on the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. See, if Jesus raised from the dead, this is what that means. If Jesus raised from the dead, that means that there is something beyond this place. 
If Jesus raised from the dead, that means he is who he says he is. If Jesus raised from the dead, then that means that what the Bible teaches us is true. If Jesus raised from the dead, you have hope, you have peace, you can have life beyond the life that you have now that God can give that to you. I mean, this is a significant declaration by these people. Significant. And I want to tell you that today because this is what I found. What I found is, is that it's these type of things that when I'm in the moment of doubt and I begin to have these discovery moments of getting in, studying, getting involved in it, seeking after it, growing in it, that God begins to build this confidence in my faith. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is one of those things that anytime something comes up and I'm like, man, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know and understand how that does. But you know what? I know about the resurrection and I know that to be true. And so I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt because all of these other times I've doubted God has proven himself to be true so God you're going to get the benefit of the doubt now I'm going to go discover and seek out what the evidence is for this objection and I think that's what we have to do give God the benefit of the doubt in fact I want to take you a little deeper into this resurrection conversation And the reason I do is because I don't just want to give you sweeping statements and say some of the greatest minds in the last 100 years are saying these things about the resurrection of Jesus. Guys who were staunchly atheists and against Christianity who have turned to Christ as a result of this. I want to give you some of the evidence for it so you can see how by discovering and learning and growing in that evidence, it allows you to begin to say, wow, you know what, there is something to this. Wow, you know what, I doubt that. I don't know if I believe that, but wow, that makes a lot of sense. And so we're going to talk about that. The first thing I want to do is I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to let you know how Paul frames this resurrection conversation. It's on page 1154 in your worship center Bibles under your seat. And I want you to see how Paul frames and outlines what he believes to be true about the resurrection. And this is what he says. It will also be on the screens, I believe. He says this. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. In other words, listen, what I've discovered, I'm going to pass it on to you. And listen, of all the things I'm telling you, this is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he, w- and, and that he, was, and that he was buried. We'll stop right there. Let, let me just say this. There is not one historian, one credible historian in the world that denies that Jesus was a man who walked on this earth and lived in the first century and was a historical figure, a person who actually lived. I've had people come up to me sometimes and they'll say, well, I don't believe Jesus existed. Well, that's crazy. Because no credible historian says that. Now, are there people who deny that Jesus existed? Oh, there certainly are. But there's no historian that denies whether Jesus existed. The evidence is overwhelming. This is a non-conversation. I don't need to prove to you that Jesus walked on this earth. Because it's a non-conversation. The evidence is so full and complete that it's a non-conversation. The truth is, is that there are millions of people who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. Millions of people. In fact, you can go look it up online, Holocaust deniers. There have been leaders of nations in our world who have said on a platform to the world, 
We do not believe the Holocaust happened yet. You can go over to Europe right now and go visit uh, all of the concentration camps that were in place during the time. And you can go to Auschwitz and you can see the piles of hair of the people that they shaved. And you can see the piles of glasses. And you can see all of the things that they took off the people before they walked them in to the gas chambers to kill them and take their lives. We have video footage of the Holocaust, video footage of the concentration camps and people that were in them. We have eyewitness testimonies. We have people that are alive that still talk about it. We have people who have written down the history of it. We know that the Holocaust happened, yet there are millions of people who deny it. And the truth is, there are people that are going to deny that Jesus existed. It doesn't mean that they're credible. In the same way, if you deny the Holocaust, it's not credible. It's not history. It's opinion. And so this is a non-issue. And he goes on, but he says, he says, for I received some pass on you for the first importance. And he, he lays out that Jesus was, was uh, what died and that he, was, that he was buried. No historian disagrees with that. But this is where the rub is. This is what separates Christianity from everything else is that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And it says, and that he was raised from the dead on the third, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Three days after he was buried, he raised, he came back to life. And listen, this is significant and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, or in other words, died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. James was his brother. And the last of all, he appeared to me, also one uh, born abnormally, uh, abnormally born. We'll talk about that in a second. And so he says, hey, he appeared to all of these people. Notice what he says. He says, listen, I'm not writing a legend here to you. I'm not making up some fanciful thing. This is fact. This is what we've seen and what we've heard. Not only did Jesus raise from the dead, and that's not only my eyewitness testimony, but there are over 500 people that Jesus has, and many of those people, most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, you can go and ask them. If Paul's writing this down, and he begins to pass this around to people, saying, this is what, what I believe to be true, then people are going to be like, bro, what are you talking about? Where are the 500 people that you say said they saw Jesus raised from the dead? They could have called him into question, but they don't. There's no history of that. There's tons of facts that surround the empty tomb, and I could give you tons of them in here, but I'm not going to do that. For sake of time, I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you the three that he mentioned. I want to talk to you about the disciples. I want to talk to you about James, and I want to talk to you about Paul. For three years, the 12 disciples followed Jesus. Three years of their life. They saw him do miracles. They saw him do all this kind of stuff. And they got to this place where in Matthew 16, it kind of gives us the picture where they believed him to be the son of God. They believed him to be who he said he was. And can you imagine to their horror when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's hauled off, he's beaten, scourged. In fact, the Bible tells us their reaction to it. They fled. They ran for their lives. They're freaking out. Their leader has just been beaten, and they are about to kill him in the most excruciating. In fact, that's where we get the word excruciating from, from crucifixion. It comes from the same word, and so that's where we get the word from, the most excruciating form of punishment ever devised to be, to be hung on a cross to die. And these guys are freaking out. Hey, man, you know what, like... Like, Jesus, it was all cool and all, but, like, when they start talking about killing us, like, it just got real. Peace out, bro. That's basically what happened. And these guys are running for their lives. 
In fact, we see Peter probably the most aggressively uh, 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 confident of all the disciples, the one who could never get himself out of trouble. In fact, when they go to arrest Jesus, he pulls out a sword and hacks off the ear of this dude, right? When, this Roman guy, right when he does it, Jesus picks the dude's ear up and puts it right back on the guy's head. And I bet Peter's like, what the crap's going on? And Jesus is like, back it up. Peter's the guy who jumps out of the boat. Peter's always the one who speaks up first. Here Peter is following Jesus, and they're, they're incriminating Jesus, and, and three different times he denies even knowing Jesus hours before he was ready to fight to kill somebody for him but now what he sees is about to happen to Jesus he's like oh no I don't want that to happen to me these guys are fleeing for their lives but then something happens within a week later these guys are going around telling everyone that Jesus raised from the dead and they are boldly proclaiming this everywhere. Peter and John, who were running for their lives earlier, the Bible tells us in one one passage later in Acts that Peter and John are taken before the Sanhedrin. They're flogged, basically almost beaten to death because they believe in Jesus, and they're told never to preach in his name again. And they say, listen, we don't answer to you. We answer to God, and we're going to keep preaching to Jesus. And it said this, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And what we know about the disciples, all of them, except for John, their fate was sealed in that they were all murdered because they believed in Jesus. Every one of them was martyred. Now listen, you can say, man, there's people all over the place that die for their religion. Yeah, it's because they believe it's true. But no one dies for a lie. Nobody dies for a lie. Let's say the disciples got together and they made up this plan. Hey, we're going to tell everybody that Jesus raised from the dead. We're going to just make this plan up. We're going to stick to it. We're not going to tell anybody all this kind of stuff. Okay, great, great, good. That's a good plan. And we go around, we start telling everybody, and maybe they would take getting beat up. Maybe they would take something like this. But the moment that they come over to me, and they grab me, and they drag me in. They start beating me an inch from my life. And then they start dragging me over to a cross, and they say, hey, bro, just tell us you're lying. I'd be like, hey, dude, listen, man. I, we were just playing. You know what I'm saying? Like, the game's up. The gig's up. Bro, we're just playing. That's not their response. In fact, this is what Peter said. Peter's taken to be crucified, and he says this. When you crucify me, crucify me upside down, for I'm not worthy Enough to be crucified like my Lord. For a lie? I don't think so. What about James? James is the brother of Jesus. The guy who wrote the book of James. Now there's also a disciple James, but this is not the same James. The James uh, that wrote the book of James is the brother of Jesus. Now what we know in the scripture tells us is that Jesus had some brothers and, and, and maybe some sisters. He had some siblings. And, and what we know about Jesus and, and about these, his siblings is that his siblings did not follow him. In Jesus' earthly ministry, they did not follow him. Now, if one of your brothers or sisters came out and said, hey, listen, just so you know, I'm the son of God. I am, that's me. I'm the son of God. And, and you are to worship me as God and, uh, and do whatever I say and follow me around everywhere I want to go. Okay, we good? you good with that? You'd be like, are you crazy? You know what I'm saying? And you'd be like, shut your mouth. You know what I mean? 
Like that's what you would say to your brother. And that's kind of what happens in this situation. Nobody, nobody can convince their brother or their sister that they are God. No one can. James and, and all of his siblings, they're like, man, what, what, what's going on here? Jesus is doing all this kind of stuff. And listen, listen. After Jesus raises from the dead and he appears to James, which this passage has told us, what we see is that James all of a sudden is devoutly following Jesus and follows Jesus to his death as well. He became the pastor of Jerusalem. When you go back and look at history, he wrote the book of James. He's the one who says faith without works is dead. Here's a guy who sold out his life. How do you convince your brother that you are God unless you raise from the dead? And people can say, well, well, and this isn't in my notes. This is one of those rabbit trails, but I'm going to give it to you for free. People can say, well, well, maybe the Roman government went and stole uh, Jesus' body. Okay, maybe the Roman government did steal Jesus' body. Here's the deal. The Romans hated the Christians because they were growing like crazy. They tried to stomp them out. Nothing would have stopped Christianity faster than the body of Jesus. If the Romans had it, they would have showed it. The Jewish leaders, all they had to do if they took the body was to show it. What we know is, is that they put a, a, a legion, a Roman centurion force around, uh, around, the, uh, uh, around the tomb to guard it. They put the seal of Rome around it, which was a rope that had a wax on it. And basically this seal represented that if you broke that seal, the punishment was death. So you're telling me these guys who are amateur little fishermen guys and, and just tradesmen who are running for their lives went and took over a Roman garrison, destroyed them facing their own death, and then moved the stone away and then took Jesus' body out of it and then went to their graves dying for a lie. That's preposterous. And I can go on and on and on. The truth is the evidence points that Jesus raised from the dead. And then Paul, the guy who wrote this, Paul was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was well-educated. He trained under this rabbi named uh, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel trained under the greatest rabbi that had ever lived up to Jesus. Paul was in line to be the high priest. He was in line to be one of the, the top leaders of, of, of uh, the Jewish people. I mean, this guy was, well, had money. He had fame. He had power. He had prestige. And he saw Jesus die on the cross. And now all these people are saying that Jesus raised from the dead, but Paul did not see Jesus raised from the dead. And Paul hated this message. And Paul decided that he was going to make it his life mission to go stomp out every person who said that Jesus actually raised from the dead. And he attempted to do that. We see him overseeing the killing of Christians. He went and he got permission to continue on his um, his uh, uh, rampage of killing and imprisoning Christians to Damascus, Damascus, Syria. And so he begins to head on the road north to Damascus. And as he's on the road to Damascus, the Bible tells us, the book of Acts gives us the encounter that the Bible says that Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. He appears to him in a bright light. And he says, he says to Paul, he says, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians? Why are you persecuting me? Paul hits his face. He's freaking out. It's an amazing story. And Paul gives his life to Jesus. He sees Jesus. And from that day on, Paul is preaching the resurrection. In fact, Paul wrote uh, uh, almost half of the New Testament and many of the letters of the New Testament. And what we see in the letters of Paul is that in almost every letter that Paul writes, he writes about the resurrection. He mentions it. It was significant to his journey. 
Now he begins preaching the resurrection and to great, to great, to great demise of his own life. In fact, what we know about Paul is that he, not only now was he not having money, not only now was he not having fame, not only now was he having prestige, but now he was the most wanted Christian on the face of the earth. All because he believed in Jesus. He even went into this one town. Uh, he even went in this one town uh, in Acts chapter 14, tells us the story. He goes in this one town and he's telling people about Jesus, and they basically stone him. Think, the Bible says, thinking that he was dead. They stoned him, thinking that he was dead. These people had stoned people to death before. They knew when it looked like somebody was dead. They drug him outside of the city and left him outside of the city as a sign of those people that would come in. It says the disciples gathered around him, other of Paul's disciples, Jesus, not the 12 disciples, they gathered around him. And it says that Paul then gets up and he goes back into the city to tell them about Jesus. That's crazy. Can you imagine? He's beat up, he's laying on the ground, and, and he just starts getting up. And like, bro, what do you, man, we got to get you some help, we got to get you some help. And he gets up to his feet and he's like, man, I got, I got to go tell them about Jesus, man. I got, bro, they just tried to kill you. They just tried to stone you. What are you doing? Yeah, but they don't know. What possesses someone to do that unless they truly believe that Jesus raised from the dead? Unless they truly had an encounter with God. And that's just a few examples. I could go on and on and on. I can tell you about why was it that the Bible records that women were the ones who found Jesus at the tomb. Why is that the case? They found the tomb empty. It was women who found the tomb empty. What we know is, is that during this day, a woman's testimony wasn't considered very much. So if you were going to fabricate a story, you would never fabricate a story putting a woman finding, finding an empty tomb. So why would the disciples tell us, why would the writers of the Gospels tell us that women found the tomb? Because they wanted it to be historically accurate. If you're going to make up a story, you're going to make it as fanciful as possible. But it's not fanciful, it's accurate. And on and on and on. The truth is that Jesus raised from the dead. And when I begin to discover truth and I study evidence, it gives me more confidence in my faith. And so like I said earlier, when doubts and things begin to come in, I just think about the resurrection. I think about the evidence that I have. And I say, hey, I'm going to go discover these things. I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go seek God on this. I'm going to go read this. I'm going to go study this. I'm going to go seek wise counsel. I'm going to go talk to a pastor about this. I'm going to go figure this out. And I want to challenge you to do that. And I want to leave you with a question here. What doubt do I need to discover? Do I need to research? What doubts do I need to discover and do I need to research? And then, go and do that. I am here as a resource. Your leaders are here as a resource. It's why we do life groups. It's a resource. It's a place for you to talk about this kind of stuff. Our residents are here as a resource. Blake, our spiritual formation, where here's a resource. And come and talk to us. Talk to us about your doubts. Listen, listen. We are not intimidated by your doubts. We are not judgmental to your doubts because we've had them ourselves. And the truth is we can be patient with you just as God is patient with you. And even though we're incomplete in our understanding and we don't understand everything, we believe that if you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what we believe. And so, man, I'm so glad that we get to have this conversation tonight. Because the truth is, along the way, you're going to have some doubts. You're going to have some teacher, some professor, some person you respect, some person smarter than you, 
that is going to tell you something, that is going to go against something in the core of what you believe, and all of a sudden, you're going to begin to have some doubts. How do you navigate that? Don't let that doubt lead to disbelief. Let it lead to discovery. So the band's going to come up. We're going to close out the service tonight. And listen, I, 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 wanna, I, I just, just kind of feel led to do this in this moment. And It's hard for me to believe that in a room of this size with many people that are in here, that every person in this room is spiritually resolved. And maybe there are some of you in here that are spiritually unresolved. You've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe for you, you've had some doubts. Maybe some of those doubts are built around some of the questions that were talked about and answered today. And you're like, wow, that makes sense. Or maybe you were like I was when I was 17 years old, and, and I said, man, I don't know, man. I know God's stirring something in my heart and my life, and, and, and I have conviction. I feel like I need to give my life to him. I still have these questions. I still have these doubts. But you know what? Like, God, I'm just going to give my life to you, and, and I'm just going to let you take over, and then I'll go discover those answers, and I'll figure that stuff out later. But if you're here tonight and you say, man, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to surrender my life to him. Give it to him, our risen Savior. He is alive. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our faith is worthless. If Jesus died and he's in the ground, this is worthless. This is meaningless. It doesn't matter. We're wasting our time. But if Jesus raised from the dead, then there's hope, there's peace, there's life, there's salvation. Bible tells us that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I'm not asking you to have all your questions answered. I'm saying would you, would you, sensing if God's moving on your heart, say, I'll surrender my life to you, God. I'll give it over to you. I don't know all the answers, but Lord, I want to discover. I want to figure it out. If you're here tonight.